the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. 602-508-0960. If you want to get in on the conversation uh, here and join me with two of the smartest people in Arizona, if not the country, Hugh Hallman and Lewis Hallman, they join us every Tuesday in the third hour to talk COVID, politics, political philosophy. Hugh Hallman's the former mayor of Tempe and a practicing attorney in town. We hold neither against him. And Lewis Hallman is his son, and we don't hold that against him, who he is also the managing director of Insight Analytics. Gentlemen, welcome back. How are you both? Uh, I'm wonderful, Seth. It's always great to be here. We that would be it. Lewis, and I'm Hugh, and we're delighted to be here. I'm a little disappointed in my audience. Mm-hmm. Now, I know probably number one rule in radio is don't criticize your audience. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it right here. Because yesterday, I said on the show, over the weekend, I cooked the best ribs I have ever cooked on a recipe I created in my own head. And if anyone wants to know about it, they should call in and ask. And I'm happy to talk about it. I did that with you, Hugh Hallman. You can testify those were delicious ribs. I got not a single call. I thought more of my audience. I thought my audience would have called and asked for the recipe. So he is he is hunting for uh, fishing for compliments, but yeah, they were too. absolutely <laughs> fabulous ribs. The whole day was fabulous. I, unlike Seth, ran in order to achieve the status of deserving such a great treat. I ran two miles, Seth, in half-mile uh, sprints, so you're now having to do that. So, so, in order someone to, was home basting and slathering. Uh, I, I have no doubt. Okay. And so he meant he, he created the recipe in his mind, not in his bathroom. Talk to us about where we are COVID policy-wise. What's new? What's interesting? What's important? Lewis. So I, I think that uh, let's start with vaccine progress. Um, so Arizona currently is sitting at 1.75 million people who have been fully vaccinated with another quarter of a million, uh, three quarters of a million people who have received the first dose of a vaccine but are not yet fully vaccinated. So we've got about 25% of our population fully vaccinated. About three in eight have started the process or are done. Um, so this looks pretty similar to the U.S. as a whole, almost exactly within a, a percentage point or so is, is, is sort of what we're seeing broadly in the country. So we're sort of running right along the pack with everyone else. And that's not quite true. There are some states who've done a miserable job and some states who've uh, succeeded in doing a slightly better job. But Arizona as a population is average and, uh, the size of its population. That's what I meant by that. States. Yes. And and uh, what Arizona has done is succeed with a f- relatively large population in vaccinating a lot, which lines up with the fascinating piece about the U.S. compared to the rest of the world. Lou. So uh, if you look at the rest of the world, you'll notice uh, right away that the U.S. is absolutely leading the charge on on vaccination. It's not even close. So the U.S. has about 330 million people in it. And of those, about 112 million have gotten at least the first dose uh, uh, of the vaccine. So quite quite a, a vast number of people, about a third of us. In contrast, 
Uh, places like Italy and Germany are only seeing about 15% of their population at that point. Canada is seeing about 20% of its population. But what's more interesting about those figures is that the overwhelming bulk of those of those cases are partial vaccines where they haven't finished getting the final dose. Italy and Germany both only have about 6% of their population, a quarter of our own rate, uh, that are fully vaccinated. So very, very, very slow progress. Um, it does indeed look like the rest of the world is probably going to be struggling with vaccination and, and vaccine rollouts through 2022. What's fascinating about all those, so if you look at the U.S. total vaccination record, it now is mounting to close to what everyone else around the world has done entirely. Um, and in the major countries we were just mentioning, the U.S. has vaccinated about two and a half times more people than Italy, Germany, um, the U.K., and Canada combined. Canada is the weak sister in this whole group. Uh, so before we continue to beat ourselves up on uh, national radio, national public radio, and uh, other sort of sorts, uh, sources of news, we need to understand how well the U.S. is doing. In addition, um, my drumbeat is going to be we've got to stop these crazy people talking about the fact that as we get spikes in places like, oh, I don't know, Michigan, we need to shut down. I actually heard an epidemiologist make the point that we have to have another shutdown because if we don't in institute shutdowns when we have outbreaks, we're going to see the virus mutate more easily and more quickly. And the answer is just the opposite is true. The whole concept of survival of the fittest doesn't mean the strongest. It means that that is adapted to the environment. And every time, as you've heard us claim before and talk about before, every time we put hurdles in the way of this virus's spread, it assures that the better kinds of uh, uh, changes will occur that allow the virus to spread more rapidly or quickly over and atop those burdens. You can see this uh, very analogously with superbugs in hospitals. Those that are exposed very, very often to um, antibacterial soaps and the like generally have then a population that is left over after you've killed 99.9% of the initial virus. That 0.1% remaining all immune to whatever you use to kill that first vast majority of it. And then that means that every descendant will then be selected from that tiny subset, all of which are immune to your countermeasures. And you will have killed off the less viral, the less uh, virulent versions. You kill off with the antibacterials, for example, all the things that are less, less uh, dramatically uh, harmful to human beings and replace it with things that are immune to those steps. Which That's exactly what's happened in this process. And so I would beg again, the goal should not be to try to pretend we're going to stop the virus. It was to manage its flow so that we didn't overwhelm our hospital systems and we could attend to those people who got it, uh, got the virus and ultimately uh, ended up with the disease and we could take care of them better. Those people who are beating the drum again uh, that we should stop the spread are in fact likely exacerbating the problem we're having, a variation across the world, and those variations may become more and more harmful and difficult to challenge. Another thing that, that this is going to interact with is the, uh, the, the emergence of new strains and their interactions with our, our vaccine policies and, and procedures. So as we are seeing new strains arise, whether it's the UK strain, the South Africa strain, the Brazilian strain, they are proving more resistant to our vaccination efforts than were the sort of initial batch of tests. So initially, 
with sort of the the old what I, I would call the kind of the common variant of coronavirus, uh, we were seeing ninety to ninety five percent efficacy with our vaccination efforts in in early trials. Uh, recent data against the the new strain specifically has that as low as 60% for the South African strain, which is sort of the most resistant to vaccine. And this is, again, the same kind of problems that you see in trying to vaccinate something like a flu, yeah, where do. you have regional, you know, uh, 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 I'm sorry, um, different strains emerge through time, and then you've got different efficacy against all of them. So you have to redevelop and change the vaccine, but that means that we are now living with coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, mutating around the world and this notion that we have a sustainable system by shoving everybody into lockdowns uh, every time we have a spike is absurd. We are going to destroy humanity this way, starve millions of children or hundreds of millions of children, have the consequences of uh, suicide and uh, despondency in our children and all the other things, not just in the U.S., but around the world. And uh, I, for one, and I know Lewis joins me in this, and I think you do too, Seth, that we have got to stop treating this virus as if it's some kind of uh, whack-a-mole game and that we can take steps to stop its transmission. Instead, it is highly likely not only are the things we're talking about now endemic in the population, but because of the the uh, variants that are created, we've now got one that appears to be highly likely to be transmitted by rodents. Uh, and this will be uh, the challenge we'll face long into the future is that uh, if we now end up with a version that's transmitted by rodents, it will be around the world and be with us and surround us at all times. Unless, of course, we're going to now have the uh, shampoo the rats program where we'll you know, use uh, or antiviral uh, shampoos to make sure that the rats don't carry this virus too long. One of the... Um one of the things about lockdowns forever, shutdowns forever, and having uh, to become inured to this kind of um, this kind of uh, whack-a-mole or uh, this kind of uh, stochastic, uh, random use of uh, use of government authority to alter, you know, businesses and schools, we 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 may overcome that. It's easier to overcome that because the stakeholders are greater and the price is higher. What I'm worried about is overcoming what looks to me like a society that is trying to make itself a masked society. I think the masking is going to have a lot more durability. I agree. I think the cultural shock is what we need to worry about. We'll talk about that when we get on the other side of this. Indicative of cultural change, we should talk about. Yeah. I'm Seth Liebson. They're the Hallmans, Hugh and Lewis, 602 508 0960. With vaccines or the illness, do you still need to wear two masks? Do you still need to stay away from friends and family? Do you still need to socially isolate? Well, if you don't want people to get vaccines, tell them just that, and they won't. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show, 602-508-0960. In studio, guests are Hugh Hallman and Lewis Hallman. And we were talking about the residuals uh, that uh, that uh, some people seem vested in uh, never putting an end to when it comes to mitigation over uh, coronavirus. And you know, lockdowns, shutdowns, uh, shelter-in-place orders – Maybe a little easier to get rid of than something like the mask, which I see as a growing um, 
having growing fanhood, having a, a growing support system. David Marcus in the New York Post writes, many cultures embrace face covering. Western culture, however, isn't one of them. Western culture revels in the human face and form. That is why Westernization is so often associated with immodesty in the East, often unfairly for celebrating the face need and tail, bearing the backside or a plunging decolletage. But we are an expressive culture, and even children who have um, certain intellectual disabilities or on certain or on different kinds of spectrums, uh, uh, social uh, social spectra, social interaction spectrums. Uh, have been damaged by not only wearing masks, but trying to read the faces of adults in masks, which they cannot do. Well, we're also a very individualistic culture, and we are also a very commercial culture. Um, Those both sort of intertwine in the West culturally to really emphasize a high-trust society. And one of the main ways anthropologically that you ensure a high trust society is you is you see people's faces. You watch their expression as they speak. And so this is why some communities were looking at anti-masking legislation five years ago, believe it or not. Right. No, absolutely. You you saw it in in France, actually, uh, in in response to um, Muslim migration, I believe. That's Right. right. That's right. So now you've got uh, a great tension here. And I think the point you were really going for. before the break, is that we are now being acculturated to these kinds of things in a way that undermines another uh, element of our real cultural underpinnings that makes this country different. Right. In the 90s, we were worried about getting used to decadence. Now I believe we're getting used to paranoia. I would go further than that. We're getting used to big government providing greater guidance Good. in a f- broader array of our uh, otherwise independent determinations Good. and giving up those little elements of freedom. This is a slippery slope problem. And I do believe in Justice Holmes admonition that there's a reason that that court sits. It is that, uh, yes, there's always slippery slope problems, but it is certainly something worth keeping an eye on. Uh, in the same way that we have uh, pushed the limits of freedom to vote very, very far in the last 20 years. There's a lot of brouhaha about vote by mail and how folks are trying to limit that opportunity. Similarly um, to the comment about masks, we pushed very far the edges of the ability to vote without going to the polls and present an ID. We created, originally, vote by mail was for people who could not make it to the polls, and you had to do an absentee ballot. That's only 25 years ago that that was the case. Then we started vote by mail. You had to request a ballot by mail and send in a card that was signed to the voting authorities, and they would then send you a ballot. Then we created the automatic vote by mail opportunity and the permanent voting um, by mail list, the PEVL list, that now everybody gets a ballot sent to them once they've requested it ever. So you die off, uh, your ballot still shows up at your home, and somebody can then exercise your now deceased hand right to vote uh, if they were signing your signature to begin with, uh, kids and other things. We have now undermined the security of the, the voting system in the name of creating broader opportunity to vote. And anyone who is questioning the extent of the limits we have pushed are now being called racists and folks who want to destroy the access to the ballot. 
that is very much akin to the point about masks. It's actually sort of fascinating to me because with all of this, you know, the the whole point, I would imagine, behind this push to increase the franchise to get more people voting is because the ability to vote, vote is valuable and is effectively how 99.9 of us are able to solely exercise our political power here in this country. And and what's very interesting about that is that the position where you might want to be leery about who is voting is done in the interest of those voting to protect that very same franchise. And so it's it's always fast. It seems tone deaf to me that there's all of this incredulity about voter protection because it is so important. In other words, in other words, if I understand you right, or maybe this is yet another element to it, and maybe I'm understanding you wrongly, but if I understand you rightly, it's you're saying that if we uh, believe that one man, one vote is an important principle, bedrock principle of Shouldn't we want to protect it? You would want to keep, as in any economic law, the value of that thing One man, one vote is... And the way to devalue that thing is to devalue it, vitiate it, water it down, weaken it by people who are not able to, eligible to, or qualified to vote. Exactly. Take away the legitimate vote. It's it's almost a Gresham's law of voting. The the, uh, the bad votes will will, will ch- chase out the good ones. Well, the other question that I have, if you know, if this is the case, if if we need more and more people voting, irrespective of cost or trouble or legitimacy to the vote itself, then I have to ask, you know, at, at what point does a vote become valid? What is the minimum threshold of voter participation that is required for these people to magically believe that an election is fair and representative? Because if we haven't then met that, then what does that say about every other election, including the ones that put them in power? Correct. I don't know. We we don't have enough people now voting, and our elections are illegitimate because too few people as a proportion of the population are voting, and those who should be voting haven't, then it does exactly right, Lou, call into question the legitimacy of every prior election. And my view would be that we there is reason to protect the vote. There was reason to make it easier. We do want to encourage participation by legitimate voters. It is the case that 50 years ago, African-Americans in the South were subjected to poll taxes and all kinds of means by which they were they were attempted to preclude their voting. That is legitimate concern in the United States. Those concerns now have been used to turn that argument inside out and that the the. the weight of the argument now is that everyone's vote should be counted regardless of the legitimacy of their right to cast a ballot in the first place. That is a problem for, for an open and free society. Nice. Nicely put. Well, this, this all comes back to the, the, the issue, though, where too many people view every challenge that we face as a univariate problem to which there is a right and wrong answer rather than an issue where we have to make value judgments and deal with trade-offs. And, and this is exactly it. You know, voting is not a monotonic good. It's not just better the more we have of it. A secure, high-quality, wide-ranging vote is the ideal. Which is why we need to come back and talk about how COVID has infected and destroyed our uh, delivery systems and undermined small businesses because of that univariate question. We'll do that when we come right back, and you'll tell me what univariate means, too. Well, you can do that over the break because I'm sure most of the audience knows. <laughs> I'm Seth Leapson. They're the Hallman, 
800-516-0960. Be right back. Do you know you can vote in more languages in California than Facebook has gender options for you? Facebook has 56 gender options you can select. In California, you can vote in more languages than that. How how many can you vote in? More than that. I just stopped when I got to Hmong, Syriac, Armenian, Persian, and then a whole host of Arabic and further Asian languages. They're adding all the time. It's an ever-growing list. Isn't that odd? I'm just wondering if you could match up the gender identities with the languages Ah, in California and ah. see what that matrix is. Oh, that that would be an interesting Venn diagram. Yeah, sure, sure. It wouldn't. <laughs> Sorry, it, it <laughs> caught us all off guard. Um, yeah, so here we were talking about uh, the options for uh, how the economy has been uh, muddled with as uh, the idea of choice sets that are uh, univariate. And the point I was going to make is that here we have more masks are good, or masks are good, more masks are better. More money or money is good for solving COVID problems, even more money is better. So we're now $6 trillion having been spent by the U.S. government to solve problems that didn't actually exist in many cases. And so we got a whole new round of checks given out to people who were otherwise could have gotten employed because we have huge numbers of jobs going unfilled because folks are getting paid not to work. But I think Lewis has a better focus on what what we uh, as folks driven by philosophy need to understand as undermining that cultural thing that is being undermined by more masks and other kinds of government choices that are being made for us. And this one is one that I don't think people have really seen because they've been taking advantage of it currently. So the the great fear that I have is this massive and unfettered consolidation of corporate power. And I think that the greatest example of this, and it's it's a pretty stereotypical one, so forgive me, but is Amazon. And the point that I would make is that Amazon is a very unusual company. Usually when we think of large conglomerates and we think of uh, a targets for antitrust uh, uh, litigation and, and that sort of thing, we think of monopolies, right? A monopoly is just someone who owns all of one type of resource and is the only seller of that resource or, or commodity in town. Energy monopolies are, are a very common type. Cable. <laughs> right, cable monopolies. Right. Yeah, so, so typically, companies. right, that sort of thing. Uh, and, and it's very, very difficult in modern times to actually get away with the real monopoly. But Amazon has, I would argue found a very, very powerful way around this. It has become and is becoming not a monopoly, but what is called a monopsony. A monopsony is is really very similar to a monopoly, but instead of being the single seller of a, a type of good, a monopsony is the single buyer of a good. So the classic example you might think of would be a mining town, a company town, that is the only employer of people. It's the only buyer in a labor market. And so this gives it tremendous bargaining power against the individual workers and the ability effectively to set its own prices. Now, what Amazon is doing is it is 
effectively keeping itself deliberately unprofitable and then reinvesting all of its profits, typically done by its web services group, into a wide variety of other ventures, things that would require typically very, very high barriers to entry. So warehousing, grocery stores, big box retail, all kinds of competitive things, but in a wide variety of groups. And then what it is doing is it is becoming the sole purchaser from businesses. Because anytime you want to sell a product, whether it's a phone charger or a new fridge or whatever, you have to then find customers to buy that. And Amazon increasingly is controlling the pipeline of sales from manufacturers to consumers. And by being that sole purchaser from manufacturers, Amazon is then giving itself the ability to not only control prices aggressively, but also to re-engineer products as they come in and then sell them as its own generic models. It is a fabulously anti-competitive model and one that we are not equipped to deal with with current antitrust legislation. Right, hold that thought. Let me have us pick up on that and take some calls on the other side. Is that we'll cool? do that, except I'm going to add, and that effort all undermines small businesses yeah. and our way of life. Right. Right. Do you agree with your son's analysis about the uh, your son's concerns? Do you agree with your son's concerns? On monopsony? Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. I ask because we were having this discussion on uh, how it affects certain libertarian concerns, but we're hitting the break, and we'll pick up on it when we come back. I hope so. We will. Sounds like a ballot in California. Let me tell you about my friend Solar Sandy. She brought integrity back to solar in Arizona. The difference between Solar Sandy and other solar companies is that she actually figured out how to truly zero out your power bill it's so important when you go solar you do it the right way and solar sandy has that formula she is the right way she wants to put more of your hard-earned money back in your pocket when you go solar solar sandy will pay 12 months of your solo payments any portion of your power bill for the first 12 months and the first 50 families will receive a one thousand dollar signing bonus that's right no solar panel payment no power bill for 12 months and a one thousand dollar bonus at signing no better time to go solar with Solar Sandy than right now. Go to AskSolarSandy.com. Again, that's AskSolarSandy.com. All right, Hugh. All right, Lewis. You wanted to tee off on what we were heading into just before the break. So, you know, I think you had asked yep. if uh, my analysis fits in Your with mouse. a libertarian sensibility at all. Right. And I, I am perfectly happy and content to uh, call for antitrust work uh, against a, what would ostensibly be a, a private company for the very fact that Amazon is not is hardly a libertarian ideal. Its existence rests on subsidy and tax evasion that is inaccessible to 99.9% of other businesses. It is a protectionist's dream. And so... I, I really don't feel that, that acting against it is inconsistent with any kind of libertarianism. You certainly regard. have examples of that with Microsoft. You have examples of that with uh, the solar systems that have been put in place. I've often been criticized for representing solar companies. I do to the extent that they are competitive to large power companies. We talked about power companies as being one of the great monopolies. 
But to the extent that they start then getting massive subsidies from the federal government, you've now entered a very different environment. And Bill Gates is not only his foundation, but also his company get massive subsidies from the federal government, as does uh, uh, SpaceX and uh, Solar City and uh, what's his other company? Oh, uh, Tesla. Tesla. So we have people who have now been lionized. Uh, for creating the most great effect- capitalists, great capitalists, yeah, and that, that's singular genius yeah, at getting yeah, tax yeah. breaks. That's yes. exactly what it is. That they have become the most effective uh, people sucking at the government teat of anybody in history. And to call uh, Amazon any longer a capitalist uh, business is nonsense. They are, it's a massive subsidy, and you look at the six trillion dollars spent. The fact of lockdowns supplied Amazon with its greatest yeah. source of customers. Because now no one could go to their local stores. Those stores were all closed. And so Amazon was the fall to. And you ended up with then you've got Uber and other similar kinds of businesses growing up out of this result. That's not capitalism. That's not freedom. That's not anti-libertarian. That is that is the exact opposite of libertarian philosophy. That is those are people. It's a, it's who are a command them. economy at that point. That's exactly right. And so now we're we're engaged with a new administration that enjoys uh, managing that command economy, and we've got people across this country who have become acclimatized, uh, that acculturated to the idea of mask wearing and lockdowns and other kinds of things. And it doesn't take a large percentage of our population to. Change Change that culture. And those of us who believe in freedom and liberty need to understand that we have to start fighting back and writing about it and talking about it uh, without embarrassment. I am absolutely happy to talk about bills that are being offered in the legislature that uh, uh, may, quote, restrict, unquote, voting. So we talked before the break about the fact that we had the obligation to vote in person unless you could prove a Com, a, a, a cause that would preclude you from getting to the ballot. So you were or the ballot box. You were in the military. You had some devastating disease. You could then vote in an absentee ballot. That was only 25 years ago. Vote by mail became the new concept. You had to still apply for it. You had to sign a document. It, your signature had to get compared. All of those things set us up so that we could have easier access to the ballot. I'm not opposed to that. I think vote by mail is a wonderful thing, as long as it's protected in a way that we don't end up with people who are abusing it. Well, what's happened? We have this huge hue and cry in the state of Arizona about ballot harvesting, and legislators worked very diligently to try to stop it. Well, here's what ballot harvesting is. Hello, I'm from the Blank Firefighters Organization, and I'm here because you didn't turn in your ballot. We're just here to help make sure that you vote. Oh, yes, certainly. We'll be happy to take it to the polling place for you. You can fill in. Oh, who do we support? This is who we support. Oh, you mismarked your ballot and supported the wrong person there. I see that. That's okay. I'll still carry it. The The problem wasn't that people would illegally fill out other people's ballots. The problem is that the ballot that is voted for someone opposed by the person collecting the ballots doesn't ever make it to the ballot box. It's a chain of custody problem, as we used to say. Yes, as lawyers. And so the the problem isn't that there are extra ballots being voted for candidate X. It's that the ballots that were voted for candidate Y went into the dumpster. They never showed up, right. They don't show up. And in in an example where 1,600 ballots got picked up for a candidate for mayor in the city of Tempe in the 2012 election, And the losing candidate lost by 135 votes. Uh 
who picked up those 1,600 ballots and delivered them to the polling place? And who might have made sure that some of those ballots didn't get voted for the person who lost by 135 votes? That's the issue here. And so now you've got legislators saying, look, we want to restrict the number of days that vote-by-mail ballots are out in, in the universe from 27 days to 15 days. That you've got two weeks plus a day to get your ballot mailed to you and vote it and put it in your post box. And now we've got GPL saying that that kind of activity is restricting voter uh, voter opportunities. And what do they say about it? That anybody that would support that kind of activity is just one of uh, the kinds of folks who are paranoid, who believe that restricting access is somehow undemocratic and interfering with people's rights to vote. You mean two weeks is not enough time to vote a ballot by mail if you care enough about the election? Really? Used to be we made everyone stand in line on November 2nd, 3rd, and 4th. With an ID. Right. Exactly. I worry about what corporations gathering together in their leftist ideological sewing circles will come up with when it comes to legislation that does affect us every day unlike something that affects us every two years and not a lot of people pay attention to. Maybe we close on that thought when we come back. We'll be right back. Someone called in, and we loved that. Lewis Hallman, your closing thoughts, sir. So I I think that we actually have gotten politics in this country almost entirely backwards in the last few years. So what what I used to believe, it was that the far left was dragging the center left further and further left. And I think that that is incorrect. What I, what I see instead is the sort of corporate center left effectively co-opting the language and marketing of the far left while retaining none of the policy positions and using that then as its main sort of uh, a cultural tool to beat the rest of us into submission with. The largest donators to Black Lives Matter are now banks amusingly enough. And so I I worry instead that it's the Joe Bidens of the world that are having the last laugh rather than the Bernie Sanders. I'm not worried that Bernie Sanders won't have the last laugh. I'm I'm worried that we have become so accustomed to the cultural changes that have occurred in the last uh, 14 months that we are too easily giving up on important elements of our lives and existence. Seth makes the point. Masks now are ubiquitous. That is a small indicator, but it is the ease by which uh, we are enjoying the uh, warm water of the pot we're sitting in. And this country's success is not driven by the fact that we're a bunch of special people. We had very special people that founded this country and inculcated the values and ideas into the society to the point that we lived them successfully for 200 and some odd years. And in the last generation, we have failed to pass on that legacy. We have determined that every failure that this country has exhibited must be exercised to the expense of the great sources of success and the notions of liberty that are important to our continuing existence And we better get that right, lest we see the disappearance of the greatest, last, shining example of a sitting on a hill that we should be cherishing, not denigrating. That's beautiful, Hugh. 
Um, and it reminds me of what Old Wormwood said to his nephew Screwtape. The game is to have them all running around with fire extinguishers whenever there's a flood. And all crowding to the side of the boat, which has already nearly gone under. Until tomorrow, everybody. God bless you. Class dismissed. <laughs>